Welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, and thanks for joining us for the 120th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. Alrighty, we'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies and a partridge in a pear tree. Okay, now a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. caught that little tagline at the end so always thank you for all that and if you would please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic 
Well, notwithstanding my uh, addition to a really good song that probably messed it up, um, <clears throat> that was a clip from uh, Beggar's Banquet album by the Stones. I'm in a Stones mood lately. And uh, that one's called Sympathy for the Devil. <laughs> I felt since we were uh, talking about the topic of empathy and sympathy, that would be kind of a cute little sneaky-in uh, song. Plus, it sort of uh, echoes the... Uh, the season which just passed, which would obviously be Halloween. So that's sort of a double dodd. All righty. So that's pretty cool. I like that. All right. As Dr. Mathis mentioned, tonight's episode is entitled Empaths and Empathy, and we will be talking about sympathy as well. And we'll discuss all that in a moment. But before we begin that topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. So I thought I would give kind of a brief history since uh, a lot of folks during that era of Beggar's Banquet and later, and and still do for that matter, um, use a lot of overdrive pedals, distortion pedals, fuzz pedals. I thought I would talk about a really famous one that most people know, um, and even if they don't know what it is, they've heard it like on a jillion records, including things like Hendrix and uh, Trower and uh, David Gilmore and just a just a jolt you know, boatload of people who've done this kind of thing. Um, and it's it's technically it's a fuzz pedal, but it's kind of a fuzz and distortion pedal as it is today because it's been modded so many times uh, and actually started out. Um, back in the day uh, as a bunch of different stuff, but eventually evolved when it was being produced in mass production for like normal folks and not, you know, folks with a lot of money and a lot of record clout. But when it was, when it was produced for the average Joe or Jolene, uh, it came out as the Rat Pedal uh, in 79 and has gone through innumerable uh, iterations and other manufacturers kind of doing their take on it. So originally, uh, when the Rat came out, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, the early versions uh, had this kind of t- with the Rat. They had this kind of little tail logo-looking thing with a bunch of fringes on it. And the first early versions were known as the Rats with the fringe logo on it, and all capital letters and kind of a fringy graphic typeface kind of thing with silver cap knobs and. Uh, had a tone knob instead of the V2 filter, which is what's going to come up in a later edition. Uh, so when you get to that, you get really, I mean, this is really a nasty, you know, all out, you don't want to muck with me kind of pedal unless you're serious. Uh, it's it's a it's a seriously mean, nasty machine. I mean, it, it sounds great, but it, it you're not going to be doing like a little bit of overdrive on this thing. It's just in-your-face distortion kind of stuff. The next kind of big iteration came out around 94, uh, and it came out, this thing was a monster uh, enclosure, by the way. It was a foot switch, but it was this huge-ass foot switch. And they decided to smaller it down a little bit uh, and put a little smaller white uh, rectangular-type logo. Uh, and the word rat uh, was in all black caps. Uh, with the white rectangle around it. And because of that, it's been dubbed the quote-unquote white-faced rat. Um, This has sort of been 
the holy grail of rats uh, when people started really using them like crazy. And this this would have been like somewhere between 84 and 86, 87. Uh, and it was basically the same version, but just different logos and a smaller box. Uh, but people who are, you know, sort of common sewers of the rat want the original one with the huge ass honking box kind of thing, but they're actually the same. And you'll hear people say, oh, they're really so different. No, no, they're the same pedal. <laughs> they're just in a smaller box with different logos. However, when the next iteration of rats came out around 69, uh, the Turbo Rat, that was a huge departure from previous rats. So previous rats had uh, accomplished their overdrive slash distortion fuzz uh, with a technique called symmetrical hard clipping. And what that basically in common English means, you had an amplifier circuit that took the guitar signal and basically really drove it across a pair of what's called clipping diodes. And what happened is the diodes basically did exactly what their title does. They clipped off the top of the waveform of the guitar. They just kind of like decapitated it and made this sort of sort of square wave shape type distortion. Um, and that was also uh, coupled with a silicon uh, tube and uh, silicon diode instead of a germanium diode and you hear these people argue which one sounds better they're very different but which one sounds better really kind of depends on what your ears like to hear I mean they're both very unique and they're very cool but the turbo rats which came out in 89 I think uh, they did not use the clipping diodes they used uh, light emitting diodes LEDs which are the same things you see in flashlights or DVD players or uh, got the dashboard on your automobile or just about any electronic device currently being used. But this was the first time uh, that this technique had been used, which really, really changed the nature of the way that the rat sounded. So the silicon diodes previously had lower uh, voltage, which was a much faster clipping and much more extreme, like harsh clipping of the, of the waveform. Uh, with a, which creates an incredibly saturated tone. The turbo LEDs uh, have a much higher uh, voltage that they put out forward, and they don't uh, clip the signal as quickly or as hard. So because of that, uh, it takes a lot more of the signal to reach the quote-unquote cutoff point of the waveform, which means if you turn the volume down or you don't hit the strings as hard like on the guitar or the bass or whatever, you can have kind of a slightly overdriven uh, type of sound as opposed to a, you know, blast your ears out, foxy lady type, you know, fuzz facey kind of sound. Uh, so you can do kind of a light overdrive tone, which was something you could not do on previous rats. They were not touch sensitive. That's what that phenomenon is called. Uh, they also had a new uh, on-off status. You could turn the LED off uh, or on. The next big iteration came didn't actually come around until 97 when uh, the Proco Rat, and that's the company that makes it Proco Company, uh, <clears throat> basically was contracted by Guitar Center to make a version for Guitar Center. It was called the Roadkill. And at that point, because of that, the Proco company uh, released kind of a wimpier version of that, a cheaperly made version. I don't want to say that, but that's what it was called, the Brat, <laughs> the B-Rat, which people started calling the Brat. 
uh, for obvious reasons. And it was basically a very grungy kind of aesthetics so that the pedal was much more, you know, because look at the, the era this thing comes out in is the era of grunge that's really taken off. And and to add sort of extra uh, grunginess, if you will, and flexibility to the pedal, they offered an input buffer circuit and soft clipping uh, inside of the pedal, in addition to the to standard hard clipping of the previous rats. So you could really... Uh, Again, modify it more, but this is definitely a grunge machine. So people who like this version of Rat, the Rat pedal, really are into more grungy kinds of stuff. And then the Proco released uh, what I'm going to jokingly recall, uh, sort of referred to as a uh, two-for-one Rat, which uh, they call the Deuce Tone for obvious reasons. This was, I think, 2002, maybe 2004. I don't remember. Early 2000s. And what this rat really was, was it was two, two, two rats in one. <laughs> and it basically had, oh, my God, I watch way too many Ronco commercials. Uh, yes. It had two separate rat circuits inside one pedal, and you could either use them separately or you could stack them one on top of the other. Right, which really, 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 really changed the whole dynamic of the pedal. And because of that, um, the the rat essentially had now two tones, which rat uh, aficionados uh, sort of named the clean rat tone and the dirty rat tone, which is why this rat has sometimes been called you dirty rat. <laughs> for, for I was waiting verses. for that one. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, that's not, I, honest to God, that is not a, one of my usual bad jokes. That really, 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 really what it, what it was called. And they finally released a single pedal version of the dual tone, of the deuce tone, and they called it You Dirty Rat. <laughs> so, uh, and that had germanium diodes in it. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very, very... I mean, it's 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 a no joke machine. The Dirty Rat is a no joke no joke machine. But the beauty of the Deuce Tone is you can have two rats in one, so you can do all these capacitor changes and have these nice, clean, kind of slightly overdriven tones, or you can just like, you know, pedal to the metal, like almost literally. Um, and then the Ibanez Company, which most people know for their guitars and some of their pedal yeah. effects pedals. Um, this was actually. Uh, Earlier in the chain, so right right before the turbo rat got done, right at the end of the right the white face uh, the white face era, Ibanez released released three different rat like pedals, um, and they basically called them the Super Product and the Fat Cat, as opposed to the Rat. And then they had one pedal that was kind of a weird off modification that was very 80s-ish uh, and they call and the pedal was called the LA metal pedal for obvious reasons it was you know your LA big hair sound type stuff uh, and what that basically was was a rat circuit with a greater input buffer and different capacitor changes so that uh, the frequency response difference and they included zero clipping diodes so the distortion was produced by overloading uh, the amp, basically the, the op amp inside the, the pedal. Um, so if you're a metal head, particularly if you're an LA metal, uh, glam metal head, the LA pedal was definitely for you. It was, a, it was a, basically an 80s version of the Rat uh, done by Ibanez. 
uh, somewhere around 2000, about the time, just, just prior to the Dirty Rat coming out, uh, there was a uh, hand-built pedal builder in, I think, Pensacola, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. His name is John Landgraf. Uh, and he was doing individually painted uh, this kind of weird, swirly kind of paint job, like you, like you paint it, like you pour different paints together and kind of swirled them uh, for the graphics. They're really cool-looking pedals. Um, and the, probably the most popular one he made was uh, called the Landgraf Dynamic Overdrive, which is actually a take on the Ibanez Tube Screamer, which is a, another hugely fa- uh, famous overdrive pedal, which I may do a I may do one of these on the Tube Screamer because that's another really, really big pedal that everybody and their brothers used. Um, but he made a, a pedal called the MOD, uh, which is very rat-like and has a lot of the rat-like tones in it. Although all of these pedals were all one-off hand-built pedals, hand-painted pedals, so very, very moddy and very, very individual. And then finally, um, well, actually not finally, but one of the final uh, mods was done actually from a a company who was designing circuits in my home state of South Carolina. His name was Philip Herndon. And he came out with, and he was a rat freak, and he came out with his rat version called the Caroline. Well, the company was called Caroline, and the pedal was called the Wave Cannon. And he really took that and just sort of uh, did kind of a cute little take on it and was doing hand design kind of pedals and eventually put them out on the market as the Wave Cannon. Uh, So that that was in, I think, 2010, I think. And there was just not. This was not too long after uh, JS uh, H pedals uh, had started, and they are one of my fiddle, uh, fiddle, my favorite pedal. I'm having tongue ties tonight. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite pedal manufacturers. I, I have several of the JSH pedals, and I really, 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 really like them. Uh, and the guy that runs that that uh, company and makes most of the pedals is extremely knowledgeable uh, and just a super funny guy. Does he look up uh, JSH pedals on the internet and look at some of this guy's videos? It's he's just hilarious. Josh is hilarious. He, he's just he's hilarious, <laughs> but but he's extremely smart and really knows his shit and makes great pedals. Uh, at any rate, he um, is a big rat freak and bought his first rat. My understanding was he bought his first rat for like 20 bucks, you know, some from crazy, ridiculous, cheap price, and started modding them. Um, and eventually uh, did a bunch of mods, I think from around 2008 or 10, about the same time the Caroline was, to 2018, and has just recently uh, reissued a uh, kind of an all-in-one pedal uh, that he calls the Pack Rat, which I think is hilarious. Uh, and the pack rat actually has every one of the circuits I just talked about uh, in this one pedal, and they're not emulations. They are the entire circuitry inside the pedal. And you have, yeah, I mean, it's it's nuts. And you have like a, a knob, that, a selector knob, and you just go from, you know, position one, position two, position three, all the way to position nine. So he's got all nine. He's got his own mod in there, and then he's got the eight ones I talked about, uh, which are the sort of the classic, iconic rat and rat emulator pedals. He's got them all in one pedal called the Pack Rat. So those folks who are uh, 
rat pedal freak should definitely go up, look up the JHS uh, pack rat. And I have not been paid to say any of this, <laughs> although I should have been. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a really, really cool pedal. Um, and, and folks who are into that, I would really highly recommend it because you can literally get these iconic pedals that you will, if you find an original one, you'll pay thousands of dollars per pedal for. So you can get all nine of them for like, I don't know what he's charging, 300 maybe 250 I don't know what the pedals cost. But whatever it is, it's a whole lot cheaper than you can go out and find these, if you can even find them. No. Anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much for all that. And There's a lot more rat jokes I think we can find in there, but I don't want to encourage you any more than you already are. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can do it. Uh, sorry about that. You were saying, go ahead. Yeah, I don't need much encouragement to uh, to make bad jokes. <laughs> so. no, you're already incorrigible. There we go. Okay. Right. I'm just, just going <laughs> to shut up and let you do your thing so we can get to the real topic tonight instead of me making all these nerdy comments. No, we're here for all of it. It's all good. All right. So <laughs> thank you for that. And again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the evening until around midnight. It's about 40 minutes left. And so feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All right. So tonight's topic is empaths and empathy. Tonight's topic is not necessarily tied to any recent incident, news article, or pop culture event like I sometimes do. It's just a common trope that a lot of us know a couple people who claim to be empaths. Many people who make this claim do not even really know how to define what is an empath, never mind how to explain the difference between an empath and having empathy or being empathetic, or the difference between any of these and sympathy. The term has a pop culture allure that belies its meaning, and tonight we not only want to set the record straight, on what each of these words mean, as well as the difference between them, but also to examine the psychology behind why it is so compelling for certain people to claim this trait. Now, before anybody wants to twist their knickers about it, please remember we are addressing these things from a psychological and a scientific perspective only. So this is not an attack on beliefs, or if you want to have your little fantasies or whatever, but the science says things, and we're going to say what the science has to say about it. So tonight we will discuss what is an empath, what is empathy, what is sympathy, and what are the differences between them all. Two, self-proclaimed empaths and what's really going on when that situation happens. And three, why do people feel compelled to make empathy into a magical power? And before we get going with the main topic of discussion uh let's check in with dr mathis see if there's anything you want to bring up before we get started nope i'm good all righty let's dive on in okay so this is going to be the longest section so we may pause in between different segments of it but this is the meat and potatoes to get your napkins and get your fork because there's pie all right so what is an empath what is empathy what is sympathy and what are the differences between them all? <laughs> all one big lump here. 
All right. So there are a lot of sources that claim to have definitions, uh, of course. And, and just remember, when we read off definitions, dictionaries are not the arbiters of what stuff means. They are the record keepers of what meanings happen. So that's not always the best place to go for professional terms. But we've included a couple of them just for perspective, and that's because we're average lay people get their definitions. So here are some, and we're going to examine a few and judge them by credibility and empiricism as well as psychological relevance. So the first one that I have is pretty short and sweet, but it's also from a dictionary, and that's why I just gave you the caveat that I did. So it's from Oxford Languages Dictionary, which is a pretty good one. And they refer to empathy, uh, to being an empath as, parenthetically, chiefly in science fiction, a person with the paranormal ability to apprehend the mental or emotional state of another individual. And this is an example of the type of definition that people see where they get some of their notions from about what an empath is and so forth. Uh, Next one is Medical News Today, which is owned by RedVentures.com, which is not a vetted medical journal, but it does quote a few respected sources. According to them, empaths are people who have a higher level of empathy than others. That's probably one of the more close to correct definitions that you will hear. Next one is from verywellmind.com, which is a source that tries to be factual, but it is only medium level of rigorous. It's pretty good, um, but it's not vetted journal good. And they said, uh, being an empath is, oh, they said, is being an empath real? An empath is a person highly attuned to the feelings and emotions of those around them. Science is divided on whether or not true empaths, people who can tap into and take on the emotions of those around them, actually exist, though plenty of people claim to have such abilities, you know, but claiming is not science. Um, This particular article came out on June 12th of this year, but some of the stuff in it dates back earlier. And it also says, what we do know is that researchers have discovered what they've dubbed mirror neurons in the brain, which may help us to mirror the emotions of those we come in contact with. And it appears some people may have more mirror neurons than others. And they cited a study by Yakobani mirroring people, the science of empathy and how we connect with others in New York, also with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and that came out in 2008. It's quoted a couple other places, but I only put it down here this once. But several people refer to their study when they're talking about this. The next one is from renowned psychologists Daniel Goleman and Paul Ekman. They have identified three components of empathy, cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. And this is how they break those down. The cognitive is, quote, simply knowing how the other person feels and what they might be thinking, sometimes sometimes called perspective taking, end quote. Emotional is when you feel physically along with the other person as though their emotions were contagious. And compassionate is with this kind of empathy, we not only understand a person's predicament and feel with them, but are spontaneously moved to help if needed. And then the next one is one of the longest. This is from psychcentral.com. 
um, which is not a pure vetted source. It's somewhat scientific. I would say maybe 3.5 out of five stars of being scientific. Uh, They said, other studies used to explain empaths include the concept of emotional contagion, which is the idea that when people synchronize their attitudes, behaviors, and speech, they also synchronize their emotions, both consciously and unconsciously. And they cite the study from Hatfield, Cacioppo, and Rapson in 94. These studies explain the existence of empathy in general. They do not explain why some people empaths have more of it than others as a result some scientists have been skeptical about whether empaths do exist and at the very least have argued that there's no evidence to support their existence beyond anecdotal descriptions of what it feels like to be one it appears however that research to support the existence of empaths does potentially exist neuroscientist and psychologist abigail marsh describes in her book the fear factor from 2017 how she found evidence that there's a difference in the brains of people who are highly empathetic to others. To learn how they responded to the emotions of others, she measured their brain activity while showing them pictures of faces with varying emotional expressions. When they recognized fear, there was heightened activity in the amygdala in their brains. Uh, Actually, Dr. Mathis, is this pronounced differently in the plural, the A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A-E? Is that pronounced yeah, differently? Uh, some people okay. pronounce it amygdala, some people pronounce it amygdala, but there's a bunch gotcha. of them amygdalas floating around. <laughs> <laughs> so all these amiggy things, <laughs> um, hmm. it, it is being used in the plural. I just want to make sure you guys know what word I was saying. Um, they're also 8% larger than those belonging to members of the control group. And there was a note down Further in the paragraph, I didn't want to include the whole thing because it's already long, but it was important to me to note that in the study, psychopaths are less able to recognize fear on the faces of others and less responsive to it when they do. Psychopaths also had amygdalae that were about 18% smaller than normal. And, yeah. other and to, to sort of, remind our listen, yeah. and to remind our listeners, the amygdala and the hippocampus are the seat of emotional expression and processing. So. If you don't have a lot of emotional brain, for lack of a better term, um, you're not going to feel empathy. You're not going to feel sympathy. You're not going to care that your victim is screaming and yelling and begging. It's going to have zero impact on you. Yeah, and and this is why I included that comment. I wanted to make sure. There was another study that I didn't end up using in here, but they had basically asserted that informally they were looking at empaths as the polar opposite of a psychopath. And in some yep. loose scientific ways, that's probably valid. So that might be a good layperson's shortcut to understanding what we're pointing at. Yep. And then this is also from Medical News Today that I quoted earlier. It's a little bit of an expansion on empaths and empathy and kind of differentiating here. And they say, empathy is an emotion or state of being that allows one person to connect emotionally and cognitively with another person. Specifically, it refers to being able to put oneself in someone else's shoes to better understand their feelings or experiences. This can help build relationships, whether those relationships are personal or professional. An empath is someone who feels more empathy than the average person. 
These people are usually more accurate in recognizing emotions by looking at another person's face. They're also more likely to recognize emotions earlier than other people and rate those emotions as being more intense. People who have higher, higher empathy are generally quicker at recognizing emotions, especially threatening facial expressions, than people who do not have as much empathy. Actually, I'm curious about something. Now that I'm sitting and looking at all this, is there a biochemical similarity to people that don't have empathy with people that have spectrum diagnoses? They don't because know what to some... do with the data they get. Okay. All right. And so what I would say is my experience with people, and what I was going to say is my experience with people that tend to have better empathy skills is they've just created more neural pathways because they practiced it more. Gotcha. Okay. It's like a learned skill. Okay. It's like playing piano or, or anything. You know, you get better because you create the neural pathways. Your ear gets attuned to certain tones and you go, oh, there's a G. Oh, there's an F minor. I, I think it's the same. I think it's a similar phenomenon with with empathy. If you have somebody that's got kind of a an average to maybe a slightly larger amygdala anyway, or it tends to be more feeling oriented because of that, they're going to practice it. And the more they practice it, the more the chemicals fire, the more they create pathways to there, and the better at it they're going to get. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um, let's go ahead and continue the paragraph. Um, they also say that this quicker reaction also comes with a more accurate assessment of a person's facial expressions, with highly empathetic people more likely to accurately recognize threatening, happy, or neutral expressions in others, you know, which fits in with which the whole the autism thing spectrum said. people can't do. Right. With, uh, people who have high empathy may have an amygdala that is more responsive to distress signals than others. The amygdala responds to fear, sadness, and pain. And that's the end of their part of the definition. So essentially, most credible sources regard empaths to simply be persons who demonstrate a significantly above average ability to feel empathy for others. Details beyond this point are not scientifically properly proved and can wander into the realm of pseudoscience or personal longing for paranormal abilities and possibly forms of feeding self-esteem issues. So let's now just define empathy for comparison. Empathy is the ability to relate to and accurately understand the reactions or emotions of others. Science does not say why some people are better at this than others. Now, I want to get to sympathy here. And we wanted to include sympathy in this discussion primarily because many people conflate or confuse the two things. And the line between them is actually kind of small. So, Here's a couple of sources talking about sympathy. Um, first one is American Psychological Association's uh, APA D Dictionary. Uh, meaning one, feelings of concern or compassion resulting from an awareness of the suffering or sorrow of another. Number two, more generally, a capacity to share in and respond to the concerns or feelings of others. See also empathy. And that's where it gets sticky and why they're used interchangeably a lot because there's an awful lot of calling parts of it empathy flat out and that encourages the using them interchangeably when they're not technically but I'm going to get into that a little more in just a second so the last one is 
Um, number three, an affinity between individuals on the basis of similar feelings, inclinations, or temperament. Sympathetic to sympathize as a verb is probably also where being simpatico comes from. Uh-huh. All right. So the, yeah. So the next source is psychology at wikia.org, which is not Wikipedia. It's a separate source that's maintained by lay people, and they cover lot hundreds of topics. It's it's very popular in dissecting media. Like, here's a dictionary, not a dictionary. Here's like a a resource with all the names of the characters in this show, TV show series, and you can see them. Um, so they did one for psychology, and they say. Sympathy is an emotional state and is a social affinity in which one person stands with another person, closely understanding his or her feelings. It can also mean affected, being affected by feelings or emotions. Thus, the essence of sympathy is that one has a strong concern for the other person. Sympathy exists when the feelings or emotions of one person are deeply understood and appreciated by another person. The psychological state of sympathy is closely linked with that of compassion, empathy, and empathic concern. Although empathy and sympathy are used interchangeably, a subtle variation in ordinary usage can be detected. To empathize is to respond to another's perceived emotional state by experiencing feelings of a similar sort. Sympathy not only includes empathizing, but not always, um, but also entails having a positive regard or non-fleeting concern for the other person. And the next one is from psychmc.com. It's a medical care facility in Tennessee. And they say, um, sympathy involves understanding from your own perspective. Empathy involves putting yourself in the other person's shoes and understanding why they may have these particular feelings. In becoming aware of the root cause of why a person feels the way they do, we can better understand and provide healthier options. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and this is from them, uh, same paragraph, defines sympathy as the feeling that you care about and are sorry about someone else's trouble, grief, misfortune, etc. While this is a noble gesture and can somewhat generate a feeling of support with expressions of sympathy, Empathy is a much more effective way to connect with those going through significant emotional pain. Empathy is defined as the feeling that you understand and share another person's experiences and emotions or the ability to share someone else's feelings. So essentially to summarize these three words, sympathy is the ability to feel concern or caring about the circumstances or problems of others, whether or not you can relate to them. Empathy is sympathy, but also being able to relate or put yourself metaphorically in someone else's shoes to correctly assess how it must feel. And an empath is, is just a word for someone who is unusually adept at empathy. There's nothing psychic or otherwise metaphysical about it. And at this point, I'm going to pause and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see what you'd like to add. I think of sympathy more as an intellectual, cognitive understanding of how somebody's feeling and able to verbalize it back to them and have some level of understanding and, and to some degree compassion. To me, empathy is being able to put yourself in another person's shoes in the sense that what usually happens is people go, oh, and they think of a time when they've had a similar experience or similar feeling, and then they generate those similar feelings inside themselves and resonate them, if you will, 
to the other person. So that, to me, empathy is much more an emotional uh, understanding and sympathy is much more cognitive understanding. Now, that actually makes sense. Okay. Um, With that, let's go ahead and go to the next section, self-proclaimed empath. So, excuse me, self-proclaimed empaths and what's really going on. So we have mostly covered this already in the first section to a point. As far as psychology and science are concerned, to date, there is no empirical evidence of a category of people called empaths. Accurately feeling empathy is an individual trait, just as oppositely psychopaths have little or none of this relevant ability or skill to discern or relate how others feel. There have been some scientific suggestions that the size and activity of the amygdala seems to correspond to accurate empathy, but nothing really past that point. And here I have a question for you, Dr. Mathis, and it's a little bit long. Okay. Um, Okay. So there are also claims of things such as that, and these are other traits of empaths. They say, you know, how do you know if you're an empath? And then they have a giant list. Um, So they say things like empaths are introverts. They cannot bear to be in crowds, cannot cope with arguing or violence. They get drained by psychic vampires. They think they always know when someone is lying. Uh, What other things could be going on with people that might explain some of these reactions? Borderline personality disorder. (laughs) Um, Seriously. I I know empaths are... Yeah, I mean, seriously. Okay. Uh, Cluster Bs, basically. Well, histrionics and borderlines in particular... Um, I, I know people who are very empathetic and whether, I don't know that they would classify themselves as empaths or not, but, uh, some of them are introverted and some of them are not. I think the ones that are, I think people who tend to be more sensitive interpersonally to folks, uh, if you're going to be extroverted, you have to learn how to kind of, uh, shield yourself from getting too involved in other people's stuff because you can hear something and be sad about it or be, you know, repelled by it. If somebody says, oh, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm a victim of sex abuse or whatever and be, you know, repelled for them, if you will. Um, But you have to keep some level of distance. And I think the successful people who are able to interact with other folks who have an ability to feel more empathy and sympathy have to find ways to protect themselves because if you don't, you're going to get overwhelmed. Um, most of the people I know, and this is certainly in no way, shape, or form to denigrate, you know, quote unquote, the people who are more psychically empathic. I'm just going to use that term because I don't really have any other good way of saying that at this point. Um, but most of the people who claim that that I know basically are histrionics and borderlines and semi-delusional. Um, I think a lot of people get get drained by other folks who tend to be, uh, as the term psychic vampire, I call them leeches, emotional leeches or energy leeches. Um, if you think of people who are constantly asking for attention, uh, what I call professional victims or people who are 
very, very low in self-esteem and self-efficacy and who want other very dependent personality types and want other people to make decisions for them and are very clingy, right? I don't know too many people that really like that. And if you get somebody who tends to be more empathetic, it would be easier for them to be overwhelmed by these folks more than somebody who uh, has kind of a healthy distancing, if you will. And I have to do some of that myself, you know, because I have to do a balance. When folks come into my, my practice for assistance, I have to do a balancing act myself from feeling empathy and sympathy for, for people who come in who have, you know, clear issues that warrant that sort of, you know, emotional response in me and be able to verbalize it without getting overwhelmed or too involved in it and then be able to stem back and say, okay, now that I know kind of what's going on here, what scientifically do I know from the research data is going to be helpful in helping this person grow beyond this and and to get a handle on their sorrow and their grief and their trauma or whatever. Um, and so I have to be, you know, my, my, my amygdala has to be firing pretty well when, when some of these folks come in who have, you know, good reason to be upset and, and the sort of thing, but I can't get too involved in it. And it's, it's a balancing act. And it would be really easy for me to not have those kinds of um, defense mechanisms, if you will, uh, up so that I get sort of swallowed up by the the emotion of the moment because some of the, some folks that I see have had some pretty nasty and horrific things happen to them. I mean, I, I had a session today with somebody who has had some, you know, and continues to have a lot of what I would classify as traumatizing type events, and it's really sad, and I have to be able to keep my balance there and reflect to the person that I get it and that I'm really sorry for their trouble because I am, um, but also be able to keep a rational head to say, okay, so here's what's going on. This is what's beyond your control. This is not what's beyond your control. Here's what you can do to kind of bring yourself back to, you know, to a level playing field. And that's a tricky balance. And folks who don't have that ability, whatever else is going on, like some, you know, somebody's stuff triggers their own stuff that they haven't dealt with or whatever. It's going to be hard for them to, to be in a weather ground of those people. But I don't know too many uh, most successful empaths, whether they're the quote-unquote psychic type or the just very, very, you know, in tune with other people, have learned ways to defend themselves. Uh, and they can get out and they socialize quite nicely with other people. But, you know, it's like anything else. It's a learned skill. Uh, and sometimes it's a trial and, and error learned skill, more error than, than the not. Uh, and learning what works and what doesn't, and then putting those psychological barriers in place so that you don't get overwhelmed. Gotcha. Okay. That's fair. Let's go ahead and move on to the next section, uh, number three. Why do people feel compelled to make empathy a magical power? So many people feel strongly compelled to paint being empathetic as if it were some metaphysical or psychic mind-reading ability. What is our fascination with this? Why can we not just let being properly empathetic be enough to be impressed with? Um, here's an example of hundreds of books just like it that I found on Amazon in a quick search. There's a book. It was running for somewhere around $20 or so, and it's called 
Empath and Psychic Abilities, a survival guide for highly sensitive people, guided meditations to open your third eye, expand mind power, develop intuition, telepathy, and clairvoyance. And before anybody wants to think that I cherry-picked this one out, I really did not. I put in like two or three words and got a long list of ones that are just like it. And I didn't really see the need to post every title, but this is a prolific thing that goes on and it contributes to why people use everything interchangeably and inappropriately or inaccurately. So we're not indicting anyone's spiritual beliefs. People are free to believe things. We're just confirming that from a scientific point of view, these things just have explanations in science. Sometimes you hear these claims from persons with trauma in their past. And this comes to another question that I have for you, Dr. Mathis. So is the attraction to this specific label possibly some form of trauma reaction? Or do traumatic, traumatic events change our brain chemistry to become biochemically more sensitive because now we can relate because of what we've been through? Is that a thing? Um, I think it's a little of both. Uh, I think that trauma certainly changes the brain. I mean, there is no, nobody disputes that. Nobody in the scientific field disputes that once you experience a critical incident, which is usually the traumatizing event. It's the trauma straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, but it's really an accumulation of a bunch of little traumata, as I call them, traumatic events that lead up. And this one event just sort of pushed the brain's ability to cope over the edge, kind of like filling a glass too full of water, and now the water's leaking out. Um, When you do that, you change brain chemistry. You change neural pathways. There's no two-ass ways about it, and nobody disputes that. That doesn't necessarily make them more empathetic, but it does make them more sensitive to things that look like, walk like, talk like, and smell like any of the aforementioned traumata that they've had. All right, and that's called classical conditioning, <laughs> right? And when, so when you see something that looks like, smells like, walks like, talks like, tastes like, the, one of the major traumas, events that's happened, you're going to have what's you know, known as a, you're going to re-experience the event. You have a potential for that, um, what most people call flashbacks. And you're going to have those. I mean, that is the brain trying to make sense of this and seeing anything that even looks like, walks like, talks like, smells like as being potentially life-threatening, uh, particularly if somebody's had some really, really heavy-duty traumata type stuff. Uh, this doesn't necessarily make them more empathetic but it does make them more sensitive and more reactionary. That is absolutely true. Um, I think in general, and, and I want to say to the listening audience up front, you know, I'm, I'm working on a third doctorate, and my third doctorate is in paranormal psychology. So I'm in no way, shape, or forming denigrating paranormal events. And we have a lot of data to support a lot of the so-called paranormal stuff. This doesn't happen to be one of them, but we do have a lot of data to support a bunch <laughs> of other stuff. But that's fair. Having said that, okay. Having said that, I do know that people do have, um, you know, uh, uh, there are some people who have brains that operate much better on an esoteric level than other brains. And I think part of that is a genetic thing, and I think part of that is a practice thing. And, you know, there's all kinds of potential explanations, and I don't know the answer, and I'd be lying if I said it did. Having said all that, I think that a lot of times people are looking for some way to be different and special in kind of a cool way. And 
But let's face it, who the hell wouldn't want to be? I mean, I joke about me being a nerd, and I am. But I'm really proud of my nerd power. And I, you know, I talk about being kind of a superpower and laugh with my patients about it. Uh, I didn't always feel that way as a kid, right? Because as a kid, I wanted to fit in more. I didn't want to be this weird guy that I am and, you know, and I tried to cover it up and, you know, pretend like I was normal. And let me tell you how badly I suck at that. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and I was really miserable at the same time. So I think, you know, I was very fortunate in that I figured out a way to uh, co-op my nerd power in a way that would help me, but would also help other people. And that's kind of how I carved out my specialness, if I will, if you will. And, you know, I didn't need I didn't, didn't need to see it as some kind of magical gift or I didn't need to see it as some kind of, okay, well, I'm trying to compensate for my inferior feelings. Because it clearly, as a kid, I had major issues with self-esteem and, and self-worth and that whole nine yards. Um, and I think some people want to believe that they have special gifts of whatever nature, um, because they don't feel worthy or they feel like they have issues or, and maybe they do have issues and somehow that makes them damaged goods. And, you know, I was, I just had this discussion with somebody a couple of days ago, one of my folks a couple of days ago, you know, who was getting all jacked up about this person's myriad of, of, you know, pathological traits, uh, you know, learning problems and stuff. And I just kind of looked at this person and I went, yeah, I don't think I got shit going on, <laughs> right? And the kid kind of looked at me, and he goes, but you're obviously really smart, and you got a bunch of stuff on the wall, so you're obviously very successful. I said, and your point is what? That doesn't mean I don't have crap. That doesn't mean I don't have a history. That doesn't mean I don't have learning disorders. That doesn't mean I don't have this, that, and the other. Uh, just because I have gifts and I'm really smart in one area doesn't mean I'm smart in all areas. And just because I have all these degrees and training doesn't mean I'm always this rational, level-headed guy. You know, catch me in a car with really bad traffic on a bad hair day, and it's really ugly. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, the only thing that makes me is human, (laughs) right? I'm not God. I'm not going to be God. And the more I can laugh at my stuff, which thankfully I have a really quirky sense of humor, and that's developed too as a way to, you know, kind of help me get through some of the, the rough times. Uh, yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It means we're all human, we're all on the path, and we all struggle. And we have gifts, and we have weaknesses, and there's nothing wrong with either of those. And you don't, you know, one, and none of those define you as a person, right? And you've probably heard me say this on the show before, and I say this a lot with my folks. You know, you cannot break a person down into that person's gifts and weaknesses and add them up and say, this equals Dr. Mathis or this equals Joe Blow or Jane Blow or whatever. It just doesn't. You know, to use the gestalt, uh, you know, axiom, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you know that I'm a musician, if you know that, right, if you know that I'm a, a cook and I'm a pretty good cook and if you know that I you know, work out and I play racquetball and I, you know, and I'm a doctor and I'm a guy and I'm this and I'm that and I'm this. And you add all those things up, you don't really know me. You know aspects of my interactions and my personality maybe, but you don't really know the me and how those are combined any more than a Martian coming to the earth that looks at a chocolate, German chocolate pound cake and goes, 
how do you get one of those? And you pull out, you know, milk and sugar and eggs and flour, and you say you put this and this and this together and you heat it up really hot. And the Martian looks at you like, what? There's no way you could have predicted that looking at these eggs and milk and flour and cocoa sitting on the counter. None. We're the same way. You can't put those parts of us together and say you know that person, and that person, therefore, a damaged person or that person, a gifted person or that person's, we're probably all a little of everything. And I think That's the sooner it. people come to that realization and accept the fact that they're going to have flaws, but they're also going to have gifts. And, you know, and that goes back to something you have heard me say hundreds of times on this show. Find what your gifts are. Find out what your strengths are. Discover your power. Every one of us has internal strengths. Don't give those away. Don't negate them. Don't minimize them. Don't laud them over other people and think you're some kind of great guy or gal and special because you got them. But don't minimize them. Take what strengths you have. Take your inner powers, if you will, and use them to help remediate the stuff you're not that great at. And just realize that you're on the same path that the rest of us schmucks are on, which is trying to make the best out of what we got until we move to the next level of the game. Gotcha. And that's really what it is, you know, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely fair. Um, I'm I'm going to pause here real quick to totally put the spotlight on somebody. I don't. You did not know this because you're not on the board. Um, we have had a guest listener in the chat room tonight, Roger Noriega, who is the head of NDB Media and our gracious right. benefactor. So I wanted to say thank you to him for coming in tonight. To and and hopefully know, not, not the always, same guy with, and hopefully not the guy with the same guy with the same name that's the uh, you know terrorist. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> He terrorizes the airwaves, especially Saturday morning, but I don't, I, oh, oh uh, my I God, didn't... but <laughs> see, he missed your good puns. That's why he's still safe. There you go. Okay. Well, there you have it. All righty. So I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up. Um, in summary, we hope now that our listeners better can understand what really is an empath and how that both relates to and differs from empathy and sympathy. So this will conclude our show on empaths and empathy. And um, Dr. Mathis, do you have anything else that you want to add in closing? I just want to say that the biggest gift we can give ourselves and everybody else is understanding. And the more you know people and the more you understand them, the less harshly you're going to judge them and the less harshly you're going to judge yourself. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. So thank everybody tonight for listening. On behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. So we're going to see you guys in two weeks with a new discussion topic on Wednesday, November 24th, right before Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble. 11 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Blog Talk Radio. And we want to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows coming up in the next couple of weeks, starting with our neighbor tomorrow night, Travel Itch Radio, Thursday, 11, 11, 21, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So to celebrate Veterans Day, Travel Itch Radio showcases 
San Diego's USS Midway Museum, the top attraction in San Diego and one of the most popular museums in the country. The most visited historic naval ship museum in the world, the celebrated aircraft carrier has drawn more than 16 million visitors since 2004 and hosts more than 700 private events annually. This kind of sounds like fun. I'm just pity I'm on the other side of the country. <laughs> Hear more from David Kuntz, who's the director of marketing for the USS Midway Museum, when he visits Travel Itch Radio, and Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee ask about the legacy of the vessel, which longest-serving American aircraft carrier of the 20th century. Called the gold standard of aircraft carrier museums by the Boston Globe, the USS Midway and its crews have distinguished naval careers during wartime, peacetime, and Hollywood time. Two episodes of American Idol, plus the PBS show Movable Feast, and even NFL shows were filmed on board with live broadcasts on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, and Antiques Roadshow, among others. And then after that, on Saturday, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, which means they get up at the crack of dawn for this craziness. So the Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, but that is hosted on Streamlabs. And then Sunday, the 14th, 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, we have a doubleheader for Fear the Walking Dead and World Beyond online viewing party. Fear Season 7, Episode 5, Till Death. And World Beyond Season 2, Episode 7, Blood and Lies. Please join us online or on the air by phone for real-time discussions, updates, trivia, profiles on the cast and crew, and more. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega is next on the 15th, 10 p.m. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Um, Roger, since you're in the channel, are you guys still doing the Nightmare Hunter on Tuesdays? Um, let me know. I'm going to give you guys the info on it. I think it's still going on. The Nightmare Hunter with Roger Noriega has moved to Tuesday evenings at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, also hosted on StreamYard when it's on. And I hope Roger will be able to let me know in the chat what the update is on that. And then Tuesdays, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Phantom Access Week in Review. Join the terrific trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of television. I don't know what they'll be covering yet, but I'm sure it's going to be fun. Okay. Um, Roger indicates that the Nightmare Hunter is currently not on, so um, don't worry about looking for that on Tuesday evenings because you guys can enjoy Phantom Access. So please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it as always. And rock on. Good night.